hey, hey. Welcome to Progressive News Network for Sunday, July 19, 2020. I'm your host, Brooke. Brooke, I am your host. Let's try that again. I'll be your host, Brooke Hines. Uh, and this week we are joined by Rick Spizak and Janine Maloff. Kardik has the night off for movies, and I hope he's watching the Wasp Network, which I'm going to get into in a little bit. Uh, I'm also going to share a little bit of what Kardik uh, wrote this week on the Florida Squeeze because it's super important. It has to do with COVID. Um, you know, Kardik Krishnire is a real good friend of the show. Uh, I've... I've uh, collaborated with him on the Florida squeeze for quite some time and his, when he gets deeply interested in something like he has in coronavirus or COVID-19, uh, he's unstoppable and, uh, a, a much deserved night off tonight. Uh, and, uh, we will miss him, but Oh my gosh, we have so much to cover. So tonight we've got, this is super special. We've got Janine Moloff, has the Reverend Daryl Gray, uh, who is from the original Black Lives Matters movement in Ferguson. He's joining Janine to talk about uh, what's going on currently, and um, I believe they'll be getting into a little bit about the customs and border uh, protection situation in Portland and the plans for that to be uh, uh, escalated throughout the country. Uh, we're going we're to be talking about that quite a bit tonight. Rick Spizak uh, had a chat with a uh, longtime uh, Progressive News Network uh, buddy, friend, Wendy Lynn Lee, uh, who is a professor of philosophy. Um, uh, so she's a woman after my heart. Uh, they're going to talk about back to school back to school time uh, in the time of COVID, like love in the time of cholera. This is back to school in time of COVID. And, uh, you know, professors are supposed to teach and there is as much pressure on teachers right now as there is on students and parents uh, in order to go back to school. So this is something that that we really need to talk about. And we need to uh, be really real about what's getting ready to happen. Uh, with regard to people being sent back to school. Um, I just put up a, listen, I haven't, I haven't written anything on the squeeze for a very long time because I suffered from writer's block. And, uh, you know, that writer's block was coming from a place of not wanting to write the same story over and over and over again, which is what tends to happen when you write about politics. So uh, uh, every once in a while, I find an angle on something that isn't the same old story, and that's what's happened this week. And so I put up a story. Uh, go check it out. It's called Privatizing the Pandemic, and I'll be talking about it here in just a second. It's about a bizarre no-bid contract that is undercutting the CDC's, that is being used to undercut the CDC's collection and uh, um, purveyorship over our COVID-19 data. Um, and so that has a lot of implications, um, Heather and Jan, Heather and Dither. Uh, I think that's it for our show notes for tonight. Um, 
I want to promo a couple of things before we get started. The first is that Janine Moloff is doing a what I what I call a PNN extra. It's an extra show that is happening once a week. Uh, her show is uh, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, and it's called the Environmental Justice Report. So Janine's regular segment here on Sundays is the Justice Report. She is doing the Environmental Justice Report because she's writing a book on environmental justice, and this is uh, this is her uh, detailing her journey going about writing this book uh, and the things that she is finding out and all of the interesting angles on environmental justice. So please tune in to the Environmental Justice Report Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, that's 7 p.m. Central. If you're subscribed on iTunes, you'll get all the extra shows, and you can check in here at Blog Talk Radio homepage uh, for PNN episodes anytime. That includes any of the extra shows we do, whether it is my own PNN extra or Janine's uh, The Environmental Justice Report. Uh, I want to let you guys know, too, that next week we've got Path the Burner, uh, also known as Pat, Patrick Coat and Savage Joy, to discuss their new book uh, called The Yas Queen Chronicles, uh, which is available for pre-order at savageandpat.com. This is a uh, this is a fun a fun book. You know, uh, this isn't the first uh, book that uh, Pat the Burner. Uh, Pat Patrick Code is also known as Pat the Burner on Twitter. This isn't his first book. He did a he did a thing on Peter Dow, which was also satire, very funny. Uh, so this, the idea behind the Yas Queen Chronicles, is it is a uh, it is a book for those too poor to attend the first annual resistance forum. So it's the transcript of this forum, uh, and the. Promotional material reads, the greatest political minds available, along with your favorite neoliberal villains, attended the first annual resistance forum held this summer in Silicon Valley, California. The seven panelists and three moderators discussed topics including vote shaming, Bernie bros, media bias, Karens, trickle-down feminism, Gaslighting, the Orange Man in Chief, and much, much more. Uh, don't miss that. That's next week. We will have um, Pat and Joy on to discuss their new book. Head on over to SavageAndPat.com and pre-order your copy today. It is a, it is, it is kind of a graphic novel or graphic uh, comic book kind of thing, and the illustrations are fabulous. Uh, and I want to mention that it's illustrated by Danny Hellman, who is incredibly talented. So there's that. There's that. There's other things. There's plenty of other things. Um, I realized this week, this is, a, this is the part of the show where I mentioned the fundraiser, and I realized this week that our fundraising link was not working. And thank you, listener, who told me that. So what I've done... This week, uh, because Blog Talk Radio is being very uh, persnickety with me, I changed the link. So go down the show notes and it says, click here to donate. What that's going to do is that's going to send you to the donation page for the Florida Squeeze, which is the same. It's me. It's it's the, I, I do both. Um, the 
any donations that we happen to raise uh, with regard to the show get uh, tilled back into the soil. What we're trying to do every year in the summer is uh, pay the bill. So we've got a, a bill from Blog Talk Radio for using their service for a year. It's not that much money. Um, so we try to raise a little bit to offset the cost. It's it's that simple. We don't do this all year, and we certainly don't. Um, uh, you know, we're not in. We're not doing the the Patreon thing. Look, this stuff is uh, hard enough to do every week. There's so much to keep up with. Um, I I. You guys who who are successful at monetizing your work, I stand in awe because. I don't know how you do it. It's it's hard enough to do the work and then to get paid for it. Holy crap! Uh, let me know how how that works out because I'd I'd like to figure it out sometime. But show notes. Go to the show notes. Click here to donate. That will actually take you someplace where you can uh, enter your pay, PayPal information and leave a little donation. Now, um, Rick has a. PNN website set up, and I think it's pnngo.com, and I tried to uh, head over there earlier tonight, and it didn't look like it was loading for me, so that's why I switched and used this other URL. I might get this ironed out this week, and uh, we shall see how that goes. Oh, my God. So I'm done with the promotions. I'm done with the announcements. Uh we can get right on into what's been, uh, what's going on and what's, what's uh, getting ready to go on. And uh, so we're going to, we're going to get down to the, oh boy, we're going to get down to the nitty gritty. Here we go. cheesy but I love that song so I like hearing it so there there you go I had to play it um the nitty-gritty what is the nitty-gritty this week the first nitty-gritty is that I had a COVID scare I thought that I got sick earlier this week I was asleep for almost two days and running a fever and just felt terrible so I made an appointment to get a COVID test because that's what responsible people are supposed to do right and um here in Central Florida, in Orlando, there's uh, the county has put up has has a page on the the, the county administrator's website where you can see it, there's there's a map and dots and you can see where all of the testing sites are. Uh, maybe a couple of them are free. Most of them are uh, you've got to pay and you got to make an appointment. Well, I felt really bad as anyone would who is sick. And went for the easiest, what I thought was going to be the easiest route, which was to make an appointment, go through insurance, and I even obtained a lab order from my own doctor's office. <clears throat> These were feats of strength, let me tell you, um, while, while I was feeling poorly. And uh, so I did all that. The appointment was supposed to be at 9.55 the next day, show up at the parking garage where all of this is supposed to take place, <clears throat> which is out on UCF campus, being run by a company called Aventus. 
and <clears throat> got there, there were probably four or five people sitting at a sitting around a table or standing around a table with some medical gear and you know kind of quasi hazmat e looking suits on you know those Tyvek kind of overall things um gloves and all that you know look pretty legit and a drive I mean, nobody else is in the parking garage there's no other uh d's <laughs> testies we were testies uh, uh uh clients we we could say of the um of the uh testing um offering there I was the only one there. I was there for about a half hour. They couldn't find my information, quote, in the system, unquote. So uh, long story short, after about 30 minutes, I was like, yeah, you know what? Um, I'm just going to go and hope that I don't have COVID. I mean, like, I mean, that's not any different. I Like, I hoped I didn't have COVID even driving in here, but I'm going to continue to hope that I don't have COVID and, but I'm going to go and just go because y'all don't have got your shit together right now. And, um, and uh, they seemed a little crestfallen, but I tell you what, the whole time I was there 30 minutes, nobody else came in. Yeah. So appointments were supposed to be stacked five minutes at a time. So in 30 minutes, whatever that is, six other people, five other people should have shown up and nobody else showed up. Maybe there's an issue with this particular healthcare company, which is called Aventus. And uh, it looks like Aventus and Quest Diagnostics and some other private healthcare company has partnered with with the county and are doing a lot of these testing sites. Well, they don't have their shit together. Now, that happened, and then a story popped up not too uh, not too long afterwards that people who had shown up to get their tests, <laughs> people are showing up to get their tests. They're being told that they they aren't in the system, and then a week or so later, they get a letter in the mail that says, "Congratulations on your negative COVID test." <clears throat> Well, it's negative because you didn't take it, right? <clears throat> so I guess that's one uh, definition of, of a negative test. Uh, it's negative that anyone was able, that these people were able to take it. Well, this is a this is a, a huge problem because as Cardick and I have talked about on the show many times, we are very pro. Let's have the facts on this. Uh, virus. We need to know what's going on with the microbe. I'm very interested in its origins. Cardiac is very interested in how pragmatically, how we deal with it um, in society. And experiencing something like this really is really alarming to me because, you know, I'm of the mind that you know, I believe in the testing and I believe that COVID exists. And there's a lot of people who don't have shared those beliefs with me. And this week, Cardiff Krishna and I over at the Florida Squeeze wrote about those people who do not believe uh, in the reality of, of COVID. And he put up this piece on the 16th called uh, the uh, it's COVID-19, the American Crisis of Reason critical thinking and intellectual curiosity. 
And he relays some of his experiences on social media and in talking to people in Florida, uh, you know, trying to get people to wear a mask and uh, be responsible around other people <clears throat> regarding COVID. And in his experience, things are becoming more and more irrational and are becoming uh, less and less safe. You know, so, so there's a rising sense of, an, uh, of alarm. And this article right here buttresses with my experiences at Aventus Healthcare at the parking garage at UCF. Uh, it's, it's one leads to the other, you know? So you've got enough people who are having these bad experiences with getting tests and make no mistake, Donald Trump is making damn sure that people are not going to have good experiences in trying to obtain tests. He's, he's just, he's been <clears throat> quite clear about that. And the story that I put up at the squeeze this week on, um, pandemic profiteering, which we'll get into in a second, uh, goes into some of the, the, the whys and wherefores of that. But I wanted to make sure that I read this um, couple of passages here. So he says, he says about halfway through, he says, um, those who have pushed various denial theories on COVID-19, including the president and various Fox News commentators, have been wrong about everything. Uh, they have, without regard for human life, put political um, uh, put their own political faiths uh, and their selfish pursuits ahead of that of the public good. Um, and he goes on to describe a flavor of irrationality around COVID and a flavor of, you know, the, that, that kind of dumb American uh, thing. He says that people on social media have called him Kung Flu Krishnayer and told him that he needs to move back to India. Um, Hardik was born in the United States. Uh, he was told, you are a confused immigrant who does not understand America. Um, he was also told, quote, just stay home and let us live our lives. Um, blah, 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 blah. You know, like, like that's, that's the kind of thing. And, you know, if you're on social media you're, you're, and you're uh, progressive or liberal, you're probably familiar with this kind of behavior. It's, it's pervasive. Um, look, guys, this is not a host. Uh, this is not a hoax. I'll be your host. I won't be your hoax, but this is not a hoax um, as well. Also, this is not a hoax. COVID's not a, a hoax. Coronavirus this is not a hoax. It looks like, um, it looks like we're heading into back to school season. It looks like uh, schools are going to try to open up and it looks like uh, that is not going to wind up well for people. It looks like, uh, you know, that could mean a lot more dead people. That, that could mean a lot more sick people. And let's not lose sight of the fact that COVID-19, we talked about this last week, even in asymptomatic people, even in people who show no symptoms of COVID-19, if you've had the virus, most of the people are, are having, experiencing long-term 
damage to major systems such as the lungs, the heart, the kidneys, and uh, your neurological functions. So your brain, your heart, your kidneys, and your lungs. The, the basic important stuff. Uh, you don't even have to be showing symptoms for that to do incredible lifelong damage. So it's extremely important that we take this seriously. It's extremely important to wear a mask. Masks do not make you less healthy. And the people who are spreading that rumor, you know, there's something wrong with them. There is, there is definitely, there is something wrong with a lot of people in the world. I mean, let's just, let's just face it. I also told the story last week about uh, someone who had gone viral, so to speak, with a Facebook post about how he wasn't going to wear no daggum mask and then died not too long afterwards because he caught this particular virus. And that is tragic, you know. I mean, people are being led to believe that this is all fun and games and that it's no big deal. And you know, we live in Florida, and I, I, I get it. It's not comfortable wearing a mask. It's hot. Uh, it's sweaty. And if you're not real careful with brushing and flossing, then it can also be stinky. Um, so brush and floss, wear your mask, and uh, try not to die of COVID. Now, what's going on? Let's, let's, let's take the elevator up to the meta level right now. And make sense of why all this is happening. Um, because as the bodies are piling up with COVID, the markets are soaring. And as a matter of fact, uh, one day this week, there was one day this week, I think it was Wednesday. Uh, Wednesday, there was a market binge where the Dow Jones just soared um, and was on an announcement uh, that Goldman Sachs posted one of its most profitable quarters ever in the history of Goldman Sachs, doubling the prediction of analysts. Now, this is happening. This isn't just a coincidence. This isn't just happening coincidentally with COVID. This is happening because of COVID. All right. They're profiting off of death and suffering, essentially. There's an article by Andre Damon in um, uh, World Socialist website, WSWS.org. This was sent to me by someone I never expected would send me an article from WSWS. So, but, you know, here we are. Uh, It begins, Wednesday was a disaster in the United States. There were 71,670 New cases of COVID recorded the second worst day on record ever, and nearly a thousand people lost their lives on that day to the disease. Uh, with Texas hospitals <clears throat> at 90% capacity, <clears throat> pardon me, dozens of mobile refrigerated morgues have been dispatched to the state. Here in Florida, 54 hospitals have zero available beds in their intensive care units. And amid a full-on drive to reopen schools, officials said that one-third of children who were tested in Florida were positive. 
adding to the body of evidence that children can play a major role spreading the disease. So this article goes on to kind of weigh what's going on, you know, because it doesn't make any sense with a pandemic raging and people dying and us having the biggest death days uh, yet of this disease. We also have the stock market hosting their most profit. So what's going on here? Uh, well, first of all, <clears throat> first of all, you've got the Fed and the federal government is basically emptying the treasure, treasury into the pockets of oligarchs. And they just <clears throat> basically opened it up, you know, like that scene in Lord of the Rings with the, 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 the dragon in the dungeon with all the gold, like, like that's what's going on right, right now. They've just opened the doors and all these, these corporate raiders are rushing in and grabbing pocketfuls of, of, uh, of coin. And um, essentially what we have is a perfect storm where the more we suffer and the more we are, you know, our family members die of this disease, <clears throat> the way that we've set up the economy, the way that we've set up the, the uh, uh, rewards and the risks in this economy, uh, people are being rewarded for acting completely sociopathic. So, for instance, the uh, airlines, American Airlines specifically, said uh, it would likely furlough 25,000 workers this year, adding to the 36,000 furloughs announced uh, at United Airlines last week. Uh, the layoffs are scheduled to take place um, despite a $25 billion bailout of the airline industry by the federal government. So that money, that $25 billion bailout that the Democrats signed off on uh, came with no strings attached. It wasn't like you get the money if you keep, uh, provide jobs for people. It was like, here, just have some money. So, of course, you know, these, these corporate boards have, by law, they have to actually make money. So if they're given the opportunity to make money, they're going to make money. Um, and that's what's going on here. Uh the massive run-up in stock prices and the profits of banks has only one explanation. So this is the gist. The capitalist state has put at the disposal of its masters in the financial oligarchy unlimited amounts of money, the central purpose of which is nothing other than the enrichment of wealthiest people in the world. Um, so you get a massive surge in the markets. You get billionaires, uh, $600 billion richer uh, through mid-March. All the claims that the bailout of major corporations by the CARES Act and the Fed's bailout of Wall Street had anything to do with helping the mass of the population are totally exposed by what's taken place. This is profit. It would be hard to imagine Andre continues, it would be hard to imagine a more corrupt social order than what currently exists. The pandemic has become a favorable factor for enriching the financial oligarchy, and as long as the 
provides the pretext for massive bailouts by the Federal Reserve, there is no incentive to bring it under control. None. No, no incentive. So what we're going to do, y'all, this is, this is it. This is what we're going to do. We are going to create the incentive for this to stop. And the way that you do that is with a general strike. So uh, tomorrow, July 20, is supposed to be a general strike, supposed to be a walkout in support of the Black Lives Movement. And uh, let's just see how that goes. And uh, I predict that that's going to be the first of many. You've got to hit these people in the wallet. That is the only language they understand. they can no longer, they need to understand they can no longer make money off of our death and suffering. And we've got to be able to bring that about. So the way I see it, a general strike is the only way to do it. And we need to do everything we possibly can to put that moral pressure on these companies um, because they don't, they don't, they don't have, they don't have any reason not to continue uh, doing all the things that uh, lead to more death and more suffering for Americans. So let's keep an eye on that. Real quick, uh, I want to get to I want to get to this piece that I wrote in the Florida Squeeze because I think it's kind of interesting, and it's still on the lines of along the lines of COVID uh, privatizing the pandemic. Bizarre. No bid contract raises questions. And what happened here was uh, I read a story about how the CDC uh, was being locked out. Like, like CDC is no longer getting any kind of pandemic information. They're not collecting it. They're not sharing it. They're not involved in it. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the week last week, I think it was Wednesday, the CDC's website where all their pandemic information was just went dark. Just no more, no more data for you. And uh, what happened is that the Department of Health and Human Services quietly awarded a $10 million no-bid contract to an obscure bed tracking company called Teletracking. Now, um, uh, government contracting is some shady-ass business, y'all. Uh, people, people are, people get rich by going through the um, uh, federal contracting opportunities, and uh, in some cases, ripping off the government. Some, in some cases, providing a decent uh, a, a enough service or or product or whatever, and being paid a a, a fair wage for it or a fair amount for it. Um, but that's not everybody. Yeah, there is a lot of graft and corruption that occurs in government contracting. This sounds like part of it. So I looked into this uh, no-bid contract, and I found out that the company Teletracking, which is, by the way, which is bed tracking. What bed tracking is, is treating hospital beds as if they're airplane seats. And so if you've got... Uh, 10,000 beds across a spectrum of a couple of different hospital or healthcare companies, hospital corporations, then they become collateralized assets. And if one hospital is at 100% capacity, then what they want to do is they want to pool 
another hospital that has more open beds with the first one so that overflow patients can be taken. Now that makes sense, you know, it has, has to do with resource allocation and it has to do with uh, getting patients uh, into the, the, into a healthcare environment where they can have their uh, issues taken care of. That's not really what goes on in bed tracking. The people who involve themselves in bed tracking are not doing it because they're interested in public health. They're doing it because they want to get rich. As a matter of fact, this particular company, Teletracking, the CEO uh, was a real estate. <laughs> it's a real estate developer because, of course, he was. He is. Um, the real estate developer and an oil and gas developer in Pennsylvania. What that basically means is this guy was um, had a long history doing uh, transactional real estate in Pennsylvania. Started doing his own stuff with it, you know, being a developer, building his own stuff, and then went into prospecting essentially with oil and gas. So Pennsylvania, there's a lot of um, shale. Uh, uh, fracking opportunities and so that's that's how you become a uh, oil and gas prospector in Pennsylvania these days. So teletracking teletracking has a director of sales. They call it business development. Who it just turns out went to Dartmouth with the secretary, with the current secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar. just turns out. And it just turns out they were both economics majors, and it just turns out that they were both uh, Phi Kappa Delta, uh, the honor society. These guys knew each other. Of course, they knew each other. Um, and it just so happens that uh, Azar uh, rang up the business developer over at teletracking and said, Hey, how does $10 million sound? And he was like, Hey, sounds great. Now, prior to getting this $10 million contract, the main thing I wanted to find out is has this company teletracking done the kind of business that would warrant a $10 million contract. In other words, have they done 1 million, 5 million, 10 million, have they done 10 million before? So I looked up their history, and over 11 years of government contracting, of contracting with the United States government, they have billed a total, over nine years, of $600,000. They didn't even break a million in the whole time that they've been contracting with the government. And then all of a sudden, they get a $10 million contract. And let me tell you, what they were doing was they were leasing software to manage beds at specific VA hospitals. It wasn't like enterprise wide. It wasn't like, um, you know, all of VA hospitals tracking all of the beds. It wasn't that. It was just a, a VA here and a VA there, and it was leasing some software here, and it was selling some software there. It, 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 it wasn't even... It wasn't even providing all of the materials. It was, <clears throat> they were just licensing the software. So all of a sudden, this company is, is, is given a, 
the most high-profile contract in the country right now having to do with tracking the pandemic, which is a public health matter, which is an epidemiological matter, which is a, a matter of um, that, that requires uh, transparency and accountability. And none of those things are uh, are provided for in this contract. As a matter of fact, it's specifically spelled out that the data they collect does not get shared out. It, it, it remains theirs, which leads me to ask the question, um, are they privatizing our pandemic data? Are they monetizing it? And are they laundering it? Because number one, I mean, like working backwards, I'm, I'm positive that the Trump administration is laundering the data. They want it to say what they want it to say and not what it actually says. Um, they're definitely privatizing it because they're, they're putting it behind a paywall. And what we have yet to find out is, are they monetizing it? <clears throat> are they going to charge us to get our data back from them? Yeah. Is the CDC going to have to pay teletracking to have access to data or are the states ever, you know, going to have access to it and be allowed to pay for it, you know, after we just spent $10 million on, on, on this. Anyway, it's a good story. It's a, if I do say so myself, um, no, it's, it's a, it's an important story and, and more people need to read it. So head on over to the Florida squeeze, check that out. There is a link in the show notes. Uh, it says bizarre no bid contract to cut public out of COVID data. Um, so go check that out and leave a comment. I like to hear what you think about it. Um, leave a comment to the Florida Squeeze, um, and uh, we will. And maybe I'll respond even. Okay. Oops. So I'm going to, holy crap, it looks like we got a caller. I'm going to bring a caller on because I'm ready to talk about this Portland business. I'm, I'm ready to talk about what's going on with, uh, with these, uh, with what looks like a fascist counterinsurgency in um in portland oregon so let's see if we can bring someone else someone on see if they're ready to talk about this uh there we go hey hey caller you're on the air what's up can you hear me i sure can okay um, i'm just having a little trouble with my phone there how are you doing nice show Thank you. Uh, I I generally don't use names on the show because I feel like, you know, most people don't want to be known that they're like out talking about politics. So, but what, what can we call you caller? Uh, Just, uh, I, I I don't think, uh, I don't think I need a name. You are no name. I will now, I I bestow upon you. No name. All right, Mr. No Name. Space Coast Boy, excellent. <laughs> it will be a Space Coast Boy. That is how, that is what we will know you by. Um, Space Coast Boy. Um, actually, I have two things I want to talk about. 
let's let's uh, get to the border patrol thing in a second. But I meant to mention to uh, and chime in if, if if you know anything about this. I meant to mention to our listeners that there is a Netflix. This is this is news you can use. There is a Netflix movie that listeners to this show would very much appreciate. It's called The Wasp Network. It is a uh, it is a uh, Okay, caller, your your call has dropped, so you're going to need to call back in. Um, <clears throat> the Wasp Network is uh, directed by Olivier Alasius. Alasius, gosh, he's French. His name's got this French pronunciation. Olivier Alasius, uh, who is a fabulous director. This movie, The Wasp Network, is a, it's, it's a true story about uh, counter-revolutionary Cubans in Miami. So that's messed up. Um, uh, what's, we never, we never get stories about, about that. Um, and uh, hold on. We never get stories about the uh, um, right-wingers in, in Miami. We never get stories about the Batistas. We, uh, um, and if we do, they're always, you know, portrayed in this glowing light or whatever. Uh, when, the, when the truth is, uh, for, for many Floridians who have been here a while, uh, you know, it's more complicated than that. Um, the, uh, the people who left, the people who left Cuba, um, when Castro took over, uh, were the folks who were a little bit sore because, uh, he didn't want there to be, uh, you know, slaves any longer, you know? So a lot of the people who moved to, to Miami, um, in the, in the first and second waves were, uh, they were, they were rich white people. They were, they were landowners and, uh, uh, they, they weren't going to, they weren't going to profit the way that they had profited. They they weren't going to do the casinos anymore. Um, so they left and had formed an anti-communist, uh, terror network essentially here in Florida and had been conducting a low-level war with uh, with um, with Cuba ever since. And so this this movie, The Wasp Network, tells a true story uh, behind uh, the Cuban Five. And let me know, callers. Uh, or anybody, if you're having any technical dif- difficulty on your end, just send me a, a DM or a text, either a DM on Twitter or uh, a text through the show. I've got a chat window right here, um, but it does seem like there's a little bit of technical hinkiness. Okay. Space Coast boy, we got you back. Um, have you seen this movie, The Wasp Network? No, I did. I watched that uh, just recently, as a matter of fact. A lot of people were talking about it online, so I checked it out. It's good. 
it, we, yeah, it was released to streaming services on June 19th. And so it, it, it took me a month since it came out to actually see it. And what actually made me want to see it was that the National Review called it, uh, uh, what was it? He said it was um, untruthful and irresponsible, if I, if I remember correctly, well, which just cracks me up. If that's not a recommendation, I don't know what is. I know, right? Um, uh, yeah, when the when the National Review is saying, oh, dishonest, that's it, Dis- dishonest and, and uh, irresponsible. Uh, the National Review, by the way, has done no less. They've done at least three articles at the top of their lungs freaking out about the WASP network. And uh, I came across this story. Uh, this is a... This is a English language story that is translated from Spanish. This came out on July the 9th, and it says the WASP network stings in Miami. And what is going on in Miami is actually kind of hilarious. Um, uh, Miami, uh, the counter-revolutionaries in Miami. Hey, caller, are you, like, uh, taking apart a car over there? Is there a – is there some – some mechanical stuff you're working on. <laughs> I'm I I I'm just giving you hell. Um, okay. Uh, the uh, story is about uh, there's there was a a push by the counter revolutionaries in South Florida. The rich white guys were uh, doing a lot of terrorism in Cuba. This started in the late 80s and early 90s. So after the Soviet Union fell in, in 19, 1991, there was a big push to try to bring Cuba back over to um, uh, back over to the United States. And they thought that if they uh, sent people to Cuba by boat from from Miami, they sent them over there with guns and and bombs, and they bombed enough hotels or shot enough people at the beach that uh, people would stop uh, visiting Cuba and that that would hurt them economically and then push uh, uh, push for uh, Castro to be ousted. That was, the, that was the basic idea. And, you know, these, these guys were not harmless. They... They they killed a bunch of people. There was a um, the, uh, the the counter revolutionaries that is the the Batistas. They they were not harmless. There was a they hijacked airplanes. Seventy four people were killed uh, at one point in a in a hijacking. Uh, it, it's nasty stuff and it's history. It's Florida history that we don't talk about very much. Uh, if you live in Miami, if you live in like 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 my my family was from Miami Beach and Coconut Grove and uh, were there during the whole time when this first started going down, and so you know it's kind of woven into the history of my family. But I don't know how many Central Floridians are are aware of this, and I certainly don't think that that many other uh, Americans are aware of this history, but let me tell you, the mob 
the Cuban mobs, those right-wing Cuban mob people in South Florida make the Italian mob in New York <clears throat> look like they're just playing footsie, okay? Because these motherfuckers are trying to uh, overthrow a country, and they're not just uh, interested in overthrowing Castro. They're interested in overthrowing anyone in Latin America who comes close to doing anything good for the people. That's just what they're about, just 100%. So it's nice to, to for once, see a movie that actually tells that story. And, of course, the um, Batista community, um, which also some people might call the Guasano community, uh, have a um, have a major problem with it, with it. And they think that they, they also don't understand the way television works now. <clears throat> they also think that they can, um, somehow take it off of Netflix, which I don't, I don't know how that would work, but anyway, they're freaking out in Miami about it. So, uh, it's pissed off all the right people. Go see that movie. Like, like, like go to your living room and see that movie. All right. Now, what was amazing that- I thought about that, about that piece? was mm-hmm. that it's not it's not a pro castro movie uh, it, it, to me i thought it was like really even handed it kind of showed it, it showed conflict on both sides it wasn't uh, and the amount of outrage that it's garnered for simply for simply laying down some historical facts that you know this sort of spy versus spy violence was going on uh, the, the you know you can't say that it's just uh, that's kind of appalling because it, it's not a it's not a pro pro communist pro castro everything's great in cuba now that's not the thesis of the piece it's it's really just a historical drama uh, based on actual uh, spies on both sides activists and terrorists uh you know kind of on both sides and for the uh, for the you know the anti Castro people to be you know slobbering at the mouth that uh, it must be taken off the air really really kind of says something. It really does, and that's that's what really caught my attention. It's it, it's hilarious to see the um, the the quotes in the Miami Herald. Uh, see, that's Pop Sugar. Here's here's my Miami Herald. Uh, so. Uh, there's there's some really funny things in this because some of the people who are portrayed in the movie are still alive, like the uh, woman who the the rich Cuban Batista who was married in Miami by one of the Cuban Five, and he, uh, she's the one who he he left her, went back to Cuba, and said, well, and told the television interviewer that the only thing oh, that right, he regretted right. leaving with it was his Jeep Cherokee. <laughs> uh-huh. So, so the real woman is not amused. She's still a thousand percent not amused by that. And she let the Miami Herald know, but anyway, I'm going to, I'm going to leave that there because we got real important things to talk about with this uh, Portland situation. And, uh, um, I mean, talk about a right-wing fascist takeover. I mean, from 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 Cuba to 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 the rest of the country. Caller, Space Coast boy, have you been following any of this going on in Portland? Yeah, it's. I mean, the, the thing you know, what there's a lot of like a, a sort of ironic uh, cross 
crossing of interests and, you know, people's uh, hyperbolic claims and everything all wrapped up in there. So the, the, the powers that this uh, move draws on, first of all, it's sort of under the ordinary constitution, completely illegal. So what they've done is Homeland Security, which already is kind of a chilling name. You know, this is, this is the kind of name for uh, authoritarian secret police that exist in those countries that we're so glad that we're not, you know, uh, you know, whether you're, you're more afraid of uh, East Germany or the old Soviet Union or, you know, uh, fascist regimes, you start talking about Homeland Security, you've already got one foot in trouble. But we, under the ordinary constitution, uh, federal troops cannot come to enforce the law in states outside of a specific request from the governors uh, of the state. So they can't do it. It's illegal. And that's not what happened here. What happened was DHS, this uh, wolf guy who's the head of it, who is the acting head of DHS because they wanted to skirt the congressional approval con- uh, uh, process because he never would have been approved, <laughs> has sent in federal marshals and border patrol agents in sort of generic uniforms, fatigues that say police on them and nothing else, people who are reputedly refusing to identify themselves, uh, who have been filmed throwing people into uh, rental vans from Enterprise, who have, in one instance, uh, shot a protester who was just holding a speaker over his head in the face uh, at point-blank range, shattering his skull. Um, it's illegal. It's not just illegal, illegal. It's unconstitutional legal. Can't do it. It's posse comitatus is the, uh, the, the legal reference that you want. And what's interesting about that is that is something that the right-wingers have been talking about for years. When they were mad about Ruby Ridge and Waco and all of that stuff back in the, in the Clinton years, they were always talking about posse comitatus. You can't just be running around with feds in the state. Uh, enforcing the law. Now, in those particular cases, people could argue about, but it was alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Uh, Randy Weaver allegedly was a, a right-winger who was sawing off shotguns for other right-wingers, so they went in on that basis. Waco, uh, David Koresh supposedly, it turned out he was, was stockpiling uh, the various weapons and munitions. So it was, that was, I think, ATF in both cases. So all the right-wing militia guys with their $1,200, you know, AR-15 rifles and their boonie hats and their surplus camo gear who are like, you know, we're ready to fight the government. We're, we're going to shoot the federal agents, and everyone was appalled. Their basis for saying that was that they were saying it's completely illegal for federal law enforcement to be running around in the state shooting people up. Um, surrounding their houses, doing all this type of stuff. Uh, And the groundwork for doing it now was unfortunately laid under uh, prior administrations like the Bush and Obama administrations, all the stuff that happened after 9-11, which enabled DHS, which I think now is, you know, one of the largest uh, uh, spendiest federal agencies that we have. We don't even know for sure how much is spent on this. Uh, And these sort of emergency laws, I don't know if everyone remembers, but uh, Bush and then Obama followed up and expanded on the idea that if someone is an enemy of the state, uh, which is another scary kind of fascist authoritarian term, then habeas corpus is suspended. In other words, you can throw someone in a hole, basically, with no lawyer, no charges, and just keep them. That's what we're doing in Guantanamo. Uh, But you could do that with U.S. citizens. Uh, Obama and Bush both said that that was okay. 
this is kind of scary stuff. All of it is 100% in contravention to the most basic constitutional principles, right to a lawyer, right to due process, uh, you know, right to assemble, uh, all of this stuff. It's, it's unconstitutional in a thousand different ways, although I suspect there are arguments to be made under these special acts that we did to protect us from terrorism. And remember, sort of civil libertarian types were squawking back then that, hey, you can't, you can't suspend all these rules. What if a madman gets a hold of them? Well, guess what? Everybody that was comfortable with maybe Bush and certainly Obama, I guess, for a lot of liberals having that power, you know, uh, dropping bombs on American citizens overseas or uh, claiming the right to lock people up with no charges. Now it's happening. Uh, and this is, this is, it's so hard to separate the hyperbole that people squawk about on the internet with reality. There wasn't a whole lot of it being used before. I think Bush locked up a guy, a, a, a mentally kind of a marginal challenge guy for months and months and months under the theory that he'd wanted to build a bomb or something and basically destroyed his life. Uh, and I'm sorry, I don't remember his name. He was, I think he was a kid from Florida maybe. Um, but other than that, it hasn't happened that much to American citizens. Uh, but there's an article, I think it's in um, it's in Esquire, uh, arguing that this is a dress rehearsal for these kind of, uh, you know, Stephen Miller, DHS Wolf guy, uh, all these sort of, you know, really right-wing, full-on fascist types that Trump has surrounded himself with. The speculation is, you know, they're trying to gain support in the, you know, in the red states by like beating up the beating up Antifa or whatever. Um, but this is this should really chill everyone to the bone. One of the last things I saw on social media before I logged off to come talk to you were some updates from Portland where, you know, I, I guess what everybody who backs this sort of thing envisions is the, you know, the if you don't like Antifa, the, you know, the black clad kids with body armor on, uh, you know, promising to fight the Nazis, uh, or a, a fair number of people, I guess, are okay with uh, the idea of them being pushed around. Um, and and I, I'm not on record, but um, the last thing I saw was a line of mothers explicitly calling themselves mothers. And if you look at the pictures, it's a bunch of sort of middle-class, you know, department store dressed ladies with backpacks and, and all this, uh, standing in front of this line of anonymous, you know, balaclava DHS troops uh, with little Lives Matter signs chanting, you know, leave our kids alone. And they're shooting at them. They are firing from the one I said, the bit I saw last was from maybe 20 feet away, firing these flashbang type canisters, the same kind of thing that shattered that kid's skull at this little line of like middle-class moms who are standing there unarmed, you know, uh, the DHS kept talking about uh, violent graffiti. I don't know what violent graffiti is, uh, but that was their justification was, uh, uh, you know, or violent anarchists doing graffiti, which I guess was code for, you know, these are the Antifa kids that all the right-wingers hate, so who cares what happens to them? Now it's, it's them, and there are stories of them being uh, the, the kind of these Antifa kids being grabbed off the street, uh, maybe not even in the commission of vandalism, thrown in a van, interrogated. Uh, in one case that I read, just let go with no explanation, never having heard charges, never having been read rights, never having the uh, the entities who arrested him identify themselves. And now they're firing these, quote, less lethal projectiles at this, this 
string of moms in their, you know, Hello Kitty backpacks uh, chanting, leave our kids alone. And I, it's very disturbing. And I don't know, you know, this, uh, it seems like we're so fractured culturally that everybody cheers when, you know, somebody's getting beat up. Um, I don't know who's cheering for this, uh, but whoever it is, it, it's very dangerous. And if it's, you know, if you're not worried about moms or Antifa kids and you think that, you know, we can kind of ball up the Constitution and set it on fire to protect statues, which is what DHS said as well, um, they're coming for you next. I mean, this could be done to anyone. And that's the whole reason we have these rules is the idea is, you know, we know first they came for the trade unionists and I said nothing. And then they came for the Jews and the socialists and I said nothing. No, when they came for me, there was no one left. Um, if you, if you can't kind of wrap your mind around that, you need to, all these rules that we have, that we kind of take for granted. You know, if you ever get arrested, they're going to tell you who they are. They're going to tell you what you're being charged with. You're going to get a phone call and a lawyer. None of that's being applied. This is third world banana republic stuff uh, where anonymous armed thugs. And again, this is not hyperbole. This is actually happening. Well, it's really illegal. It's really, it, it's uh, really it's happening. And I remember in, in late 2011 and early 2012, when uh, Obama signed the uh, national defense authorization act, the NDAA that, you know, be, it, that yeah, undercut the fourth yeah. amendment, uh, uh, it, it, here's here's a little piece I wanted to read. Um, the statute contains a sweeping worldwide indefinite detention provision. While President Obama issued a signing statement saying that he had quote serious reservations about the provisions, the statement only applies to how his administration would use the authorities granted by the NDAA and would not affect right. how the law is interpreted by its subsequent administrations. Well what that did and what we were losing our minds about back then was that, you know, okay, if you want to say Obama's a nice guy and he would never do anything, you know, untoward with the uh, fourth amendment it's not the point it was never the point this is the reason why we have things like rights encoded in the constitution and the bill of rights is not the you know if if somebody of good conscience you know whatever is has these powers then they're not going to do anything wrong but you can't set up your society that way you have to be prepared for the person who's going to abuse them which is something you know, they, they understood in, in, you know, the uh, 18th century when these documents were put together is you can't trust in the benevolence of authority. And what can happen right now is that somebody you know, be disappeared off the streets and you never hear anything. Uh, and who knows if you ever hear anything. Maybe they get released. Maybe they get charged. And, you know, as you said, everybody was counting out Obama would never do that. Well, they still did that a couple of times, as a matter of fact. Um, but this is on mass. This is like roving, roving gangs of anonymous, uniformed guys with weapons, um, scooping up kids and throwing them in trucks. There was also some disturbing footage of a woman walking along with a, uh, you know, like an assistance uh, dog of some kind, walking, just walking down the street. They tackled her. The dog is screaming and terrified. Like five guys tackled her. Uh, they're hitting people around her with batons to keep them from intervening. And somebody's going to get killed. And I don't want that to happen on any side. I don't want to see anybody. Uh, but, but either these guys are going to, I mean, they've already maimed somebody. 
they're either going to maim or kill someone who hasn't committed any kind of crime other than being suspected of violent graffiti mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, uh, somebody with a more of the right winger mindset is going to say, Hey, you're not a cop. You're not going to tell me who you are. Uh, you're not going to tell me what I'm being arrested for. I'm going to fight. And then what happens? What happens if they get killed fighting? What happens if they kill one of these federal law enforcement officers and won't say who they are and have no legal right to be there? This is not made up stuff now. This is not fantasy land and what's the worst case scenario. This is really happening. The only limiting factor is it's a fairly small scale right now. Uh, but if this establishes the precedent that you know Trump can send a bunch of guys in vans to start grabbing people off the streets, we don't really have the kind of country that we thought we had anymore for real. And I don't, I don't see anyone responding. I see Nancy Pelosi writing a sternly worded letter and talking about starting an exploratory committee to begin an investigation. This needs to stop. Somebody needs to grab these guys off the street lawfully, you know, whether it's the local law enforcement or what have you, and make them stop. They need to be brought down and uh, told that they can't do this. And it sounds like that's what the, you know, the leadership in Portland wants. So now they're doing it against the wishes of the local governance, which really takes it out of the Constitution. Uh, and it, it's whatever part of the political spectrum you're on, even if you love Trump or you love cops or you hate kids with graffiti, um, this could happen to you uh, without Absolutely. question. And if, if you're okay with it, then you're really not okay with the basic stuff that we're supposed to be proud of in this country, that we have a civilized society where you don't just get disappeared. You don't get taken in a van and dropped out of a helicopter uh, or something because you didn't agree with, a, with anybody's politics. Uh, it, it really is terrifying. It's not hyperbole at this time. This is incredibly destructive. And if, if this isn't stopped and if no one is punished for doing it, we have set an awful precedent. You know, if you like, if you like this guy and you like who's getting beat up right now, you're not going to like it next time. You're not going to like it when, you know, your anti-abortion protesters get grabbed off the streets and thrown in a van uh, or shot in the face. It's it's wrong and it's completely out of control. And the people doing it are doing it with a purpose to push us in this direction, and they are daring us to stop them. Well, and so there's other there's other American cities, and I know I saw this story earlier, and I wish I would have. We're talking uh, about doing it in New York, in Chicago, and you know, and I've seen people already on social media saying, you know, that they're spoiling for a fight. That's not good either. You know, nobody wants to. uh, Just to reiterate, I don't want to see anybody hurt here. Uh, but go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to step on your thoughts. You're absolutely right. The DHS has talked about expanding this out to the other states that are having these Black Lives Matter protests. Right, right. And that 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 was exactly what I wanted to uh, – you actually had the information that I was looking for. It's a handful of cities. New York and Chicago are included in there. I did not see a Florida city in there, but uh, – you know what, I'll see what I can find and uh, add that to the show notes as we move on. I am going to have to uh, leave it there for now on Portland and bring up Rick's Rick's interview with uh, Wendy Lynn Lee. But Space Coast, Space Coast Boy, 
Thank you so much for calling in. And I so much like what you had to offer on the uh, posse comitatus and, you know, the kind of uh, constitutional issues here. Uh, so valuable. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great show. Keep it up. I, I listen every time. All right. Yay. I have a regular listener. Um, okay, you guys. I ran a little bit over with that. I have Wendy Lynn Lee's uh, interview in two parts, and I'm going to have to save one part for next week. But without further ado, I am going to start part one. This is uh, this runs for 14 minutes, and when we come back, we will jump right in with Janine Moloff and Daryl Gray. But first, part one with Professor Wendy. Here it goes. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the great honor and good fortune to be able to speak to Professor Wendy Lynn Lee of Bloomberg University. No, uh, of Bloomberg University. Bloomsburg. Bloomsburg. Okay. I always think of uh, the the Doonesbury, uh, Bloom County and all that stuff. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, Professor, you have written uh, a letter both uh, to the university and to the community at large to raise the yeah. important issues that must be addressed before we casually take the advice of an anti-science um, Luddite administration who, who yeah. says, science be damned, send the children out, what the hell? What could go wrong? Uh, and, yeah. and kind of, if you would synopsize your message to the community as well as to the university. Sure, and I I don't think that this is actually all that complicated. Um, <laughs> I don't think this is rocket science. Um, whether we're talking K through 12 or colleges and, and universities, most of the issues are pretty similar. Um, I, I get it that smaller children, children under the age of 10, um, are less likely to be sick and less likely to be particularly potent um, disease vectors, um, but they still can be. And the, we, we talk about this as if children, um, even young children, middle school, college-age kids, we talk about them as if they live in homes where there are no other people. Um, when, of course, we know, all right, this is the part that's not rocket science, that that's just not true. Um, at where I live in rural Pennsylvania, the possibility that there might be grandparents in the home, right? There are a lot of farms out here. Uh, the likelihood that there might be grandparents in the home is very common, right? That's multi-generational households are very common here. And so, you know, the likelihood that a child could asymptomatically spread the coronavirus uh, on the school bus in the home um, is is just very high, and it it honestly just blows my mind. It befuddles me that we don't take that more seriously out here where I live. Although out here where I live, um, mask wearing or more likely not wearing is a clear political um, signal uh, about whether or not you are Republican or Democrat. Um, and so I mean, it, it's surprising that we haven't actually seen 
an even greater outbreak than we have. But I think that gets to my main point, right? I would argue that that outbreak is coming um, in part because mask wearing behavior uh, where I live is, is just not very good. Um, and in part because we continue to have enormous public gatherings, a monster truck jamboree. We're going to have what really effectively amounts to the state fair here in September. And so part of my letter was about what those events and what reckless behavior is going to mean on a university campus where we seem to be in the throes of this other great, great um, self-deception. And that is, that is this, right? And I think this is one of my main, main points. We are pretending, but it's idiotic. We're pretending that, that college students are going to play by the COVID-19 rules, the social distancing rules. We know they aren't. We know they won't. We can all see the pictures. We've all seen pictures of, you know, kids playing on the beach in Florida, kids at pool parties, right? Kids here, kids hanging out in bars. Um, and we also seem to think that even though our governor, just as of yesterday, Governor Tom Wolf has now um, closed the bars again, if, if we think that that means that students aren't going to have drinking parties at home, right? If we think that that means that they're going to stay six feet apart and wear masks while they're playing beer pong, we are fools. So from my point of view as a teacher, right now speaking as, as a teacher, the prospect of my being put in front of a classroom of, of those kids who I otherwise love, right? I just know they're not going to play by the rules. Um, it, it's terrifying. It, it's just terrifying. And I think I am speaking for virtually every colleague, not just in Pennsylvania, but across the country. I think I'm speaking for nearly every teacher in this country um, when I say we are terrified for ourselves. We have families, for our students, for people's grandparents and parents. The, the idea that I'm going to be put in a classroom where the CDC guidelines suggest that the safe number of students maximally is four to five, and my classroom is already booked out at 13, and there's no plastic screen between myself and them, and there's a mask-wearing mandate, but we know that that can go wrong in a thousand ways. Um, the very idea that, that that will be safe in a state where the testing is very poor and the contact tracing, especially in the rural counties, is simply non-existent. It, it is terrifying. It's like, it's like I'm going to be just counting down the hours and the days until I get infected. And it's not at all clear to me that my administration cares. Well, we hear time and time again that, uh, you know, there's – Meetings have been held with school boards, with educational uh, organizations, uh, and, and we hear that, well, you know, uh, we're going to let the public decide. We're going to let the common denominator uh, decide whether we're going to behave safely and scientifically. And I, I find that absolutely appalling. Um, <laughs> when, 
you don't you don't consult your neighborhood bar as to whether you're having surgery or not. You you don't you yes. don't consult yes. you know the the local yes. uh, you know it, it's it's just amazing. And some of the points that you make in your essay, where you state that at no point has has the county met CDC guidelines yeah. and that that, uh-huh. that it's compounding the fact that there's no testing and there's no contact yeah. tracing. Um, it seems like yeah. science is being aggressively ignored. Yes, aggressively ignored is a good way to put it. And, you know, we can pretend that we're surprised about that, but that just <laughs> makes us hypocrite. Sorry, science is ignored um, here. And I just, my, my here is lots of places in this country, right? It's just lots of counties in this country. Like, why should we be surprised? We ignore the science um, that revolves around the climate crisis, right? We, we ignored the science when it meant that we couldn't smoke cancer sticks, right, around tobacco. We ignore the science and science education. Um, and I'm a huge supporter of the public schools, but science education here is also not what it ought to be. Um, and so, why is it surprising that that we're going to ignore the science here? I, I have one really good anecdote about this. I had to go into a store, and I I am not trivial about this. I plan store visits really carefully. I'm the girl with the mask and the hand sanitizer. I really make it a point to play by the rules because Absolutely. I respect other human beings. So I had to go into a store to get necessary electrical supplies, right, to fix something in my house. Um, and I, I leave the store, and I tell who I think is the store manager, but I'm not sure, right, on the outside. I say, I say look, there are a lot of people in the store who are, not, who are not in masks, and they're not social distancing, and they're not following the floor arrows, right? They're just not playing by the rules. And his response to me, I'll just quote him now, because it epitomizes much of what, what we see out here, um, and, and I think everywhere. He says to me, and I quote, this is America. <laughs> you know, the, the argument that I find so beyond belief appalling is they say, well, you know, people are just, they're fed up. You know, they just don't want to do this anymore. They feel so confined and, I, you know, yeah. and, and when DeVos said, well, you know, astronauts take chances, I, I was thinking, you know, uh, yeah. would an astronaut <laughs> complain, you know, I don't want to wear a spacesuit when I go out and do my extravehicular walk because they're so cumbersome. I would much rather mm-hmm. walk out there without a spacesuit because, you know, I, it, it's so confining. And besides, I'm an American. Yeah. 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 And that comparison is woeful in in a, in a hundred ways. But there, uh, the, one of the ways philosophers would point out that it's woeful is that there's a world of difference between voluntary risk and subjecting others to involuntary risk. Yeah. Uh, you you want to go outside your spaceship without your spacesuit, and you're not going to harm anyone else, and you're going to die instantaneously. Go! But the fact of the matter is that when you go outside without a mask, anywhere, inside, outside, anywhere without a mask, it is indecent. It's not about being an American. It is indecent. It is disrespectful of other people. 
Uh, and we owe that to one another, whether we're Americans or Martians or astronauts. We owe that modicum to one another. Right. So this whole notion that this is somehow about our freedom or our rights, I just find that absurd. Well, you know, another one of your, your points that I find just so compelling is you say, I will I say will for two reasons. Number one, COVID-19 can be spread asymptomatically. And this is even mm-hmm. more likely with younger people because they're less likely to get sick. And number two, because we will not be able to control or police the behavior of our students, regardless of their age, sufficiently to keep classrooms, hallways, bathrooms, locker rooms, dorm rooms, eateries safe. Have you heard anything about federal funding to up the janitor count to increase the staff in cafeterias to clean between meals? Have you heard any of these things? Of course not. No, no. And there is, it's because there's no more of that than there is testing or, or adequate testing or contact tracing, right? I don't know. I don't know what my administration, right, or any university or public school administration is thinking. Are they thinking teachers are now going to be janitors? Don't have time. Don't have time, right? Uh, especially the way our semesters are divided up now into little tiny bite-sized pieces as if that was going to keep us safe, right? I, in that letter, I lay out 13 what I think are really ordinary, realistic scenarios about how we're going to all get infected. (laughs) You know, like a student who emails me at 1 a.m. in the morning to tell me, right, that they've been diagnosed as positive, but they were in class yesterday. Right now that triggers an automatic 14-day quarantine, right? That's a nice chunk of my semester already gone, right? I can come home and, and try to get everything back up online, Right? But the students are all, are all in quarantine, too. And it's not like the student who emails me only has my class. Right? Every professor and every student in every class, that's right. even before we get the contact tracing, has to now go into 14-day quarantine. Right? That's just stupid. It's not like that we're doing it this way. It's just stupid. What about, you know, what, what, what am I going to do in a, in a hallway where the kid behind me, right, rips his masks off, mask off and then he sneezes? Right. Yep. What do I do? What do I do with that? Right. Am I infected? Do I now try to go get tested? Um, right. Do I, you know, eat up the rest of my, my, my teaching day trying to find a way to get, I wait 10 days for the test to come. Like what, what do we do? Um, so, you know, I just, these are very practical questions. These are events that are going to occur. And now that the governor has also uh, ended most, sporting events in the state for the fall semester, right? Including at Penn State, which I, about which I'm sure nobody's happy, right? But it's like now that our football season is over, right? What we've effectively said is this. We think it's too dangerous for coaches to be in locker rooms with their athlete students, right? But we still think it's too dangerous for, for teachers to be in a classroom with the same kids. Obviously, professors are not as important and valued as the precious coaches making millions of dollars. All right, you guys, that is the first half of the interview that Rick Spizak did with Professor Wendy around a little bit over. Um, I wanted to talk to you guys for a second about uh, 
nine years. There's nine seasons of PNN on Blog Talk Radio, and it's been a, a good platform. And uh, I've been getting, as we're getting more listeners, as we're getting uh, more requests for streams, as we're live, I am starting to see the limitations here. And we can only get so many streams out uh, while we're live, and that is a problem. So when I play an interview like that one with Rick Spizak and the amazing Professor Wendy, I uh, I go to another room, I try to start the stream on a mobile device, and uh, sometimes I get on and sometimes I don't. Tonight was a night that I had trouble getting on. And I looked and, you know, we've, we've got a lot of uh, stream requests. So to that point, as we are looking at what we're going to do with regard to uh, renewing this year, since we're up for renewal, uh, I'm looking into some other services. And one of the ones that I like a lot is called Restream, which is, which allows you to uh, use, video formats to stream to Periscope, to Facebook Live, to YouTube, to Twitch, uh, you know, where all the cool kids are now these days. Uh, The downside for me is that it is a video interface. And while my studio is set up for video, I don't love doing video because I think that most of the time it takes away from uh, really good conversations where where, where we're just talking. But I have a plan for this. I think what I might do is move over to one of these streaming services that uh, allows us to restream. And we will probably go with, we'll probably stay audio only, but we will go with a uh, um, a graphic interface, kind of like slides or something like that, that are running while we are uh, discussing the information, which is actually... Uh, as I set up each show, I, I do this sort of thing already, um, uh, essentially creating slides for, for myself. So that might not be too hard. I will keep you guys updated on that because this is, this is important stuff. Now, we have such an important interview coming up. I want to make sure that we introduce it correctly. This is Janine Maloff's intro music. Yes, we do. Uh, we're waiting. Do we have uh, Reverend Gray on the line? Uh, we do not. Uh, it's a few minutes early. We've got about two minutes okay. until the bottom of the hour. All right. Um, well, do you want to introduce the intro. Reverend Gray? Yeah. Uh, Re- Reverend yes, Daryl Gray. Okay. Yes. Reverend Daryl Gray is one of the political leaders to come out of the Ferguson protest of 2014. He serves as the political advisor for the St. Louis Metropolitan Clergy Coalition. 
He has steadfastly challenged the political status quo, which indirectly supports systemic racism, both in the streets, quote, praying with his feet, to borrow quotes from Dr. King, and from the traditional church pulpit. He has taken the good word into the community, bringing help to anyone in need, whether it's giving out face masks during the COVID pandemic or helping uh, out hungry people with another St. Louis gem, Mama Cat, and her pot bangers mission, mission, feeding the hungry and the homeless. He has run for political office. He is, he is presently running in the Missouri House of Representatives for the 77th District while keeping it real with other politicos who would prefer to bury the issues of systemic racism, abusing migrants, kidnapping migrant babies and placing them in cages, police-sponsored murders, and other predatory behavior, in addition to just the savage economic inequality of our day. Recently, he has led multiple protests against police brutality in the light of the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, among others. He was quoted in a 2018 interview with the Christian Science Monitor calling out St. Louis as the new Selma. And now we're waiting to welcome Reverend Gray to the show. Awesome. So tell me a little bit about uh, the work that you've done with Reverend Gray. I understand that you've uh, participated in some protests in St. Louis with him. Well, yes. You often see a lot of the same faces. Uh, Reverend Gray works closely with U.S. congressional candidate Cori Bush, who's in line to hopefully become the fifth member of the squad along with AOC and the others. Um, He's also close to former uh, Missouri Congressman uh, Bruce Franks, who's now on hiatus. And he has worked closely with the Democratic Party. Uh, Here in St. Louis, you see, like I said, the same faces, the same the same issues. When I mentioned Mama Cat, she has this group called Pot Bangers, and Reverend Gray helps with that too, where they go out, even if it's zero, especially on zero degree weather nights, and they find homeless people and try and get them somewhere, inside somewhere where they can not, free, you know, where they can be warm and, and they feed them, and um, even if it's somebody's home. So this is something where, unlike some of the tonier churches, Reverend Gray is the real deal. He doesn't just preach the gospel, he lives it. And with that, we have Reverend Gray on the line. I want to welcome you, (laughs) Reverend Gray. And I am going to mute my microphone and let you guys take it away. Janine, if you could leave me two minutes at the top of the uh, hour, and uh, I will uh, give people some information on your upcoming show on Thursday. But you guys have have it. I'm going I'm to reread the intro so Reverend Gray can hear it. Reverend Daryl Gray, welcome to the show. You've been listening to one so of the top political. Thank you. You're one of the top political leaders to come out of the Ferguson protest from 2014. You serve as the political advisor for the St. Louis Metropolitan Thursday Coalition. You steadfastly challenged the political status quo, which indirectly supports systemic racism, both in the streets, praying with your feet to borrow from Dr. King and from the traditional church pulpit. You've taken the good word into the community, bringing help to anyone in need, whether it's giving out face masks during the COVID pandemic or helping out with another St. Louis gem, Mama Cat, and their pot fingers mission, feeding the hungry and homeless. You, you are running for political office in the Missouri House of Representatives for the 77th District. 
yet you keep it real with other politicos who would prefer to bury the issues of systemic racism, abusing migrants, kidnapping migrant babies, placing them in cages, police-sponsored murders, and other predatory behavior, in addition to savage economic inequality. Recently, you've led multiple protests against police brutality in light of the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others. You were quoted in 2018 in an interview with the Christian Science Monitor calling out St. Louis as the new Selma. Welcome to our show. So I'm just going to start with a few questions, if that's okay with you, Reverend. That'll be fine, and thank you so much for that introduction. Uh, if, if you don't mind, I, I do want to pause for a minute. Uh, Reverend C.T. Vivian and Congressman John Lewis were friends of mine. Uh, we worked together over the last four decades uh, with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, uh, mm-hmm. and I, I just want to I want to applaud uh, their service, uh, not just to the civil rights movement, but to humanity. As I said, they were good mm-hmm. friends. They were giants among civil rights iconic giants, and uh, mm-hmm. they will they will definitely be missed. And we pray that they'll rest in peace and power. So thank you for allowing me to say that. Oh, Ed, I totally agree. Uh, feel the same way. So we're going to start. You've led some major protests in Ferguson on through the uh, protests with, with migrant kids in cages scandal. March is happening now after more police-sponsored murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others. <clears throat> It's shocking to say that there's too many to count. Just this past Thursday, I saw on Facebook that you were being threatened by a cop during a peaceful protest. Could you describe what happened? We, uh, our group, Expecta, which is Mm -hmm. an organizing group of several of the uh, young folk that also came out of the Ferguson movement, uh, decided to uh, conduct civil disobedience at Melina Cruson's home at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, the reasoning behind that was that she, police officers, to remove protesters uh, who were protesting nonviolently in front of City Hall and who had, de- who had decided mm-hmm. to occupy that space, removed them at four o'clock in the morning, and about oh, seven wow. people were arrested. And we felt that if they could. Uh, <laughs> If they could go in and and uh, aggressively remove uh, nonviolent protesters from uh, City Hall, the People's City Hall, then we should at mm-hmm. least let her know what it felt like to be awakened at four o'clock in the morning and have your peace disturbed. Uh, right. We were uh, confronted with dozens of police officers, uh, not in riot gear this time, fortunately. Uh, but with the same riot gear mentality, this particular police officer, white male lieutenant, decided mm-hmm. that he wanted to bully his way through the crowd of protesters. Uh, and from, I would say, from about 15 or 20 feet, came directly to where I was standing. Uh, right. I, I had not moved into that space. I was already occupying that space. From 20 feet away, he came aggressively towards me, got up in my face, I put my hands up, and he told me to move out of the way. 
I told him I wasn't going to move. I said, I'm occupying the space. He pushed my shoulder, and he moved past me. But at that moment, it was important for myself and others around me. I think you saw the young lady beside me who also had their hands up. We wanted to make Mm -hmm. sure that they knew, A, that we were not of any threat, that we were unarmed, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, we were standing on ground. Uh, The aggressiveness of that evening, if you could have seen the look, and for those who have seen the picture, I think you can see Mm -hmm. the look on his face. You can. But to be face-to-face with that kind of hostility, to be Mm -hmm. face-to-face with that kind of aggression, uh, it is daunting, to say the least. Uh, And, yes, I I must confess, uh, that night I said for my safety, and the safety of others, right. uh, but we were willing uh, to stand our ground. We were willing to be there in a nonviolent way, and we were there to exercise our First Amendment sure. right. But it was sure. it was a it was a scary moment. One person got did get arrested that night. Mm. I, I wanted to ask you also. A couple of weeks ago, there was a protest in Florissant, and we had talked about this before. And Florissant is another, for our viewers, our listeners, another sundown town, much like yeah. Ferguson. Arrests were made as the Florissant police claimed that protests were violent and destroying property, attacking police, et cetera, et cetera. You said the arrests for destroying property were due to someone painting on a piece of plywood. Could you, could you tell us about that? Well, once again, that was another one of our actions with expect us. Uh, right. We had decided that uh, the group who had been out there previous to us, who was really holding it down, that they deserved some time off for some self-care. So we planned mm-hmm. an action. And once again, our action was as a result of several protesters a few nights before uh, being attacked by police. Uh, one young lady, black black woman, had her hair, piece of her hair pulled out uh, by police officers. Uh, one oh of the God. younger protesters uh, was was injured. And so, you know, we continue to say that we're not going to stand for it. We're not going to allow for it. So we decided right. to show up. Uh, we understood from the police that they would allow us to be on the street. They would allow us to be on the sidewalk, but they wouldn't allow us to be on what they considered police property, which means the parking lot, a vacant parking lot, surrounded by fence, uh, and boarded up. And so we decided to go on to the parking lot. So as we approached the parking lot, several of our protesters on the parking lot began to write the demands of the movement. Plywood that had been used to surround a statue. It was a statue that the police had uh, on the parking lot. They were protecting uh, the statue with the plywood. So the protesters wrote on the plywood. The next thing we knew, uh, about 40 uh, riot-clad, riot-gear-clad police officers exited the building. We were given orders to disperse, but we indicated to the police officers that we are here nonviolently, that we are of absolutely no threat to them, Right. And we and we stood our ground. Uh, I was in the middle, on the front line in the middle. I had my clergy collar on. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure that, that they know who I am. They know I'm, I'm Reverend Gray. 
And right. after the, about five minutes after the third warning, uh, we heard the order to advance, sprayed from my head to my no. toe. Uh, they arrested uh, that night about 15 to 16 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was a young 19-year-old who had been slammed to the ground and drugged to the police station. And we have uh, posted pictures of his wounds on social media. Right, uh, I saw it that. Was, it was brutal. Uh, the was. police chief later said that the reason that they came out is because they saw on their camera that someone had pulled some plywood or attempted to pull plywood from the window. That is not something that we saw. It is not mm-hmm. anything that we directed our people to do. It is not right. anything that we would condone doing. Uh, And what we said in response to the police chief's comments, if you saw that on your video, then A, you Mm -hmm. saw that no one was entering your building. And if that were the case, why didn't someone come out and de-escalate simply by saying, we have a video recording of someone Mm -hmm. attempting to uh, do something with the building. We have it on, on recording. If it does not cease, we will have no other alternative but to remove you from the parking lot. That was not done. But see, Jeanette, that that's part of our issue. That the police that that their first option seems to be to escalate a situation versus to de-escalate a situation. And as a result of that, over fifteen people were arrested. Uh, Many were we feel were victims of excessive use of force. And the one mm-hmm. young man, based upon the scars uh, that mm-hmm. we observed, with no medical attention, uh, was brutalized mm-hmm. at the hands of police officers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I agree with you, okay? The, the police do escalate things. Uh, again, I don't see messing with plywood that's covering up part of a parking lot as a problem, frankly. Now, uh, another thing is, we just I just read the other day that there was a march sponsored by a group called Law Enforcement Today, and the march was nationwide yesterday. And it was clear that the police and noted white supremacists of the GOP have co-opted the silent no more message rightfully claimed by minorities. Um, right. They call it the back the blue rally and saying we will be silent no more. And they're taking it, they're not only pushing in my opinion, a false equivalence narrative, but they're taking it further. They're claiming they're the ones being abused. But to speak to this historic revisionism and, frankly, just propaganda. Well, I mean, once again, and, and, and you followed this as, as I have, mm-hmm. uh, they, they have to do something to control the narrative. Now, the reality is is that I think that we are a a – a nation of laws, uh, mm-hmm. and we respect that. Uh, we are a nation that believes in public safety, and we respect that, and we respect the rights of free speech. Uh, mm-hmm. But you you can't change history. The reality mm-hmm. is since uh, Janu- Ju- July 14th of last year, 536 Black people being murdered by the police mm. in this country, 500 
and 36. The youngest was 15 years old. The oldest was 84 years old. And so we're talking about black people being killed at the hands of those who vow to protect and serve the public, irregardless of color, irregardless of economic status, irregardless Mm -hmm. of culture, creed, or anything else. And, And so... If you, if you compare the number of police that have been mm-hmm. killed by any assailants, be they black or white, versus right. the number of blacks that have been killed by police, primarily by white officers, there is no comparison. And even right. if the president, in his skewed sense of right and wrong, says that whites have been killed by police also, that's still an indictment. It's, yeah. it's no different. If you say whites have been killed at the hands of police, blacks have been killed at the hands of police, we're not mm-hmm. talking about issues of self-defense, shootings. We're talking about questionable shootings or questionable deaths. We're talking about a George Floyd death. We're talking about a mm-hmm. Breonna Taylor, no-knock warrant, sleeping in her bed death. We're talking about a Walter Scott being pulled over by police officers with a traffic violation. He is running away unarmed and shot eight times. See, these are the cases that we're talking about, so there is no comparison. And so when white police officers resign in mass, 76 police officers resign because they can't use a chokehold that has been already determined illegal, that is the – that's – that's who they represent. And we have to continue to say, even though we, rep- we respect your freedom of speech, you cannot change reality. You cannot right. change the facts. You cannot change history. 536 black unarmed people right. killed at the hands of police officers. But right. this is Donald and, and Trump. And this is Donald Trump's message, and this mm-hmm. is Donald Trump, and, and, and this, this, is, this is the Donald Trump that we know, Jeanette. This is not a new, this is not a new Donald Trump. This mm-hmm. is what Donald Trump does. He fuels, not only does he fuel the flames of racism, he brings the gasoline. He brings the yeah. wood. He lights the match. He doesn't just fuel the flame. He lights right. the match. And totally scapegoating agree. is not new. Scapegoating is not new. To America, nope. to American racism. No, That's not at all. That's how the Klan was formed. That's how the Klan was formed in Pulaski, exactly. Tennessee. Right. It was it right. was it was shareholder landowners who said right. to white sharecroppers, "These black folk are getting ready to get forty acres and a mule. They're going to have more than you. You need to rise up against them." Donald Trump right. is doing the exact same thing. He is creating a modern day Klan. Yes, he is. In fact. The Jim Crow laws and uh, the Klan and all of that, when Hitler was on the rise, he based what he was doing on the racist model of the United States. That's right. That's That's what he did, and he justified murdering in excess of 11 million people. Now, we have, and, and I'm glad you mentioned rule of law, because rule of law is really not rule of law if it's applied Inequally, okay. It has right. to. That's you right. have to apply it appropriately. So, to give you. I'm going to ask you just. I think we have time for probably two more questions. So I want to get all of okay. them. Okay. So, 
In Portland, Trump ordered what amounts to a secret police force authorized to terrorize protesters. The secret police were committing acts of military rendition, which is basically another term for kidnapping. And it was revealed that the secret police and military gear were a combined force of border patrol, federal marshals, and, and some others. And Trump's already threatened to send these same secret police, their thugs, to Chicago. He's already sent them to Kansas City, Missouri. And at the same time, here's the kicker. When white supremacists and neo-Nazis were threatening Michigan legislators by storming the Michigan Capitol, <laughs> they were brandishing right. automatic weapons. Right. No such call right. to send in the troops. Let's speak to that discrepancy, this hypocrisy, which isn't rule of law. And, and, and then I'm gonna, my last question is going to deal with something I know that is near and dear to your heart, which is liberation theology. And that's where right. I want you to just preach away. So let's start All with right. the part of the issue. Well, there, there is a concern across the country. Uh, our group uh, expect us met yesterday to discuss just what is happening and how government law enforcement, federal law enforcement, are now being used as Trump henchmen uh, to silence, to intimidate, to threaten, and even to arrest uh, protests around this country and to label them uh, Mm -hmm. in such a way uh, that the Patriot Act uh, could be invoked to take away people's rights and freedom uh, Mm -hmm. without due process. Uh, we do have that same concern in St. Louis, and it's it's been mm-hmm. brought to bear just as recent uh, for us in St. Louis uh, as the last couple of days. It is very real to us. Uh, we're mindful of it. We have lawyers on 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 call right now in St. Louis. We have lawyers on standby right now because we don't know in St. Louis if it could happen to us any day now, and so. Right. Uh, when you have the federal government labeling uh, black protest organizers under the file uh, black identity extremists, right. and based upon based upon that file and based upon uh, that definition and characteristic that they've given, they can come and pick pick any one of us up on, on right. any kind of charge, and we can be held for months without bond without bail, yeah. because within the federal system, they don't give it. You have to have a hearing. And so it is another method to uh, intimidate, to threaten, mm-hmm. and to silence what they see is probably the most critical movement that we've seen in our lifetime, including the civil mm-hmm. rights movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, see, they see more young people. They see more young white people. They see more right. white women. They mm-hmm. see this cultural explosion of people who have said that mm-hmm. they are prepared to sacrifice themselves for, for mm-hmm. freedom, for justice, for social change, and it scares white males. And yes. so uh, I'm glad to see uh, that the governor, uh, uh, I believe what it was, of uh, 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 Seattle, in Oregon, uh, yeah. has said that they're calling upon the inspector general and there are others who are saying that this is right. wrong and we're calling for an investigation. And we've right. got to make sure that that conversation uh, is talked about. And I'm so glad you brought it up tonight because people need to know, people need to be aware, people need to be on guard right. 
so that if, God forbid, any of us are arrested uh, mm-hmm. under these charges, these bogus mm-hmm. made-up charges, that at least people are aware and we will have somebody to come to our aid. My hope, my prayer is that it won't happen, uh, but uh, we're trying to prepare ourselves if it does. Right, and, and the thing is with, you mentioned Patriot Act and some others, and when the, Patri- the Patriot, Act, Patriot Act was the beginning of this slippery slope, and I recall because I wrote about it, and when it was first passed, every member of Congress signed off on it, even though they hadn't read it both Democrats right. and Republicans alike. And then we've had some issues beyond that. We, there is no reason for any secrecy in law at all. And right. I do find it, I, timing is suspicious too, because yeah. if you pull a lot of people off the streets, especially in cities that are likely to vote against Trump, yeah. in conjunction with what's happening with COVID, him letting people just die, from lack of resources in the world's That's right. richest nation, then, again, the timing looks very suspicious. And, mm. you know, let's say so we have a rogue attorney general. This last point, I know is near and dear to your heart, and this is about liberation theology and, yeah. you know, what and, and how St. I agree, St. Louis is the new Selma, most definitely. And one of the things that, you know, I I. I want your minister stuff because basically when you're talking about justice, when you're talking about equal rights under the law for everybody, you are talking about morality. That's right. You just are. And so, you know, I I want you to educate our audience because a lot of people aren't necessarily well-versed in that about liberation theology, what the church had to say, and, and, uh, you know, basically bringing it together with that idea of morality. I mean, from my own from my own tradition, you know, the Torah says what is hateful when done to you do to no other. That is a whole mm. sum of the Torah. The rest is commentary. And then the other thing is Tikkun Alami. We have a moral obligation to help fix the world for everybody, not just for our own. So we have about four more minutes left. I'll be and real I want quick. you to just go to town. Just 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 preach, rather preach. Well, listen. Thank you so much. Well, I, I think it's very clear, and I think that you know, and others who know me, I'm I'm a I'm a, a disciple of, of of Jesus, and I'm I'm a disciple of Dr. King, and 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 Dr. King's foundation uh, is my foundation, and it does come from our biblical text uh, in mm-hmm. Micah in the Old Testament. Uh, in Micah six, it says, "He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you." to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What, what is good? What is required? And Dr. King believed that. That was one of his basic principles, that we as people have an obligation, we have a moral obligation to yeah. act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly. And if, you, and if you really look at it, liberation theology is simply this. The church has the moral authority and the moral obligation to serve humanity, regardless mm-hmm. of who you are in humanity, be you Jew mm-hmm. or Gentile, be you male or female, there is an obligation. Jesus said, when you have done it unto the least of these, in other words, when you have done it unto the oppressed, no matter what that oppression is or who is being oppressed, when you have done it unto those who are oppressed, you are doing it in my name. And so that was Dr. King's philosophy. The church was founded 
not to benefit the pastor or the priest or the rabbi mm-hmm. or the imam. Right. The church was founded to benefit not even those within the congregation, but the needy outside of the congregation, mm-hmm. outside of the mosque, outside the, of the synagogue. And so when people like James Cohen and Dr. King and Gardner C. Taylor talking about liberation theology says that because we have the moral authority, we are obligated. It is not, it is, it is mandatory it, 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 that we are obligated to speak truth to power. And that is what the faith community is supposed to do, to be that community of conscience, to be that conscience for America, to say, wait a minute, America, this law, the law of segregation is wrong. The, the, mm-hmm. the, any law that promotes uh, xenophobia is wrong. Any law that, that is against uh, the Jewish people is wrong. Any law that, that, that is unjust in any way is wrong, and we have a moral authority to challenge that law as a church more than anybody else, more than the Democratic Party, more than any other political party, any other fraternity or organization, the church as an institution, as a body of believers. And that's what Dr. King said. And if people realize it, Jeanette, and and you're right, I'll preach on that. If people (laughs) analyze the speeches of Dr. King's life and work carefully, they see that he promoted a more radical approach to justice and, mm-hmm. and, 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 not, and not one that asks citizens to be neutral on racism or, that right. merely, or, or, or one that merely offers comfort. He talked about mm-hmm. disrupting the status quo, and he chastised white moderates in his letter from the Birmingham jail. If you want to see the example of, of, of liberation theology, read Dr. King's letters from the Birmingham jail where he taught liberation theology to rabbis, to to Mm -hmm. to, to all of our faith communities. And and that's really what it is at the end of the day. Our church, our mosque, our synagogue, our temples, our centers cannot be silent because if not us, then who? And that's what Dr. King believed. That's what the Torah teaches. I believe yep. that that is what the Quran teaches. I know that yep. that's what the Bible teaches if we look to that. And so that's just where I am. And, and I told my congregation this morning that I am tired. I've got a family, and, and, and I care about that. But there's, a, there's an old song in the Civil Rights Movement that said, We shall not, we shall not be moved just like a tree that's planted by the waters. We shall not be moved. John Lewis believed that. C.T. Vivian believed that. Dr. King, Rosa Parks, many others believe that, and I believe that even now. And that's what I stand on, and that's what liberation theology is all about. Thank you so much. We're out of time now, but you're a treasure. Thank you, and God bless. Thank you, Judy. God bless you, too, and you be safe. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. And thank you, Janine and the Reverend Carol Gray. we got to get out really quick, so I'm just going to leave you with Sharp and Time, Willie, and we will see you again next Sunday. And don't forget, Thursday, which you
band is called the Bad Livers, and uh, they're the loudest bluegrass band you'll ever hear in your life. Just amazing players. I don't know if they're still around, but uh, check them out if you can find them. The Bad Livers, North Carolina. See you guys next week.